Hello, everyone. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Today, we are joined by my dear friend, Jeffrey Tucker. Um, before I even begin to introduce Jeffrey, he kind of needs no introduction, but um, I, I wanted to remind you all, uh, this is an enormous privilege and opportunity to be able to um, have a few moments of Jeffrey's time and ask him questions. So please, um, if you are joining us by Zoom, take advantage of this, type your question in the uh, Zoom box, the Q&A icon. If you are joining us on Facebook, um, please just type your question into the comment section and we will try to, uh, to get to as many of those questions as we can. Um, Jeffrey, I am going to, before I even get to his many, many professional accomplishments, I just wanted to say something about um, what Jeffrey has meant to me personally. Uh, Jeffrey and I uh, diverge, last I checked, on the question of the supernatural. But um, if, if ever there was a temptation for me to stray from my metaphysical commitments, uh, Jeffrey would be it because his presence um, in my life has been, it's, it's been like a, an, an angel for, for me. Um, on so many different occasions, um, he's been there for me in my my darkest times when I when I lost uh, a job and just felt completely destroyed, uh, and he's literally been there. I'm like a scene out of uh, Atlas Shrugged when I just felt like I couldn't go on anymore. To physically gather me in his arms and um, pick me up, bring me to to bed when I had like questions about like what am I doing what what is this what what am I doing with the Alice what am I going to do he has uh he's guided me and he's um he's given me pivotal insights uh about the role of Ayn Rand that has uh, completely shaped um what I I do today and if I had only listened to my angel of light uh I would have I would have even had less darkness, you know, in, in my life over the past however many years. Um, so uh, thank you, Jeffrey. Um, oh, that's a really touching introduction. I'm, I'm, I'm really moved by it. Thank you, Jennifer. And you're certainly, you're certainly right. I mean, we both had, we both had prof professional struggles and, and difficulties and, and we've learned, we've learned through them, right? We've learned, I think. We have learned and, uh, and we have been there for each other in just, you know, some very interesting and unusual um, ways. Uh, and, and Jeffrey, you know, continues that um, he is the editorial director for the American um, Institute for Economic Research, um, but he's also been a pivotal part of the evolution of the Atlas Society. I mean, even just as recently as the, uh, the, my name is, is Ludwig von Mises. Um, oh, what a wonderful video, uh, uh, Jennifer, that is. It's so, and by the way, uh, if you think I've failed to promote it, I'm writing an article about it and going to, because it's really great. That, that show is wonderful. It makes people cry. Yeah, it's brilliant. Well, you know, just behind the scenes, folks, um, it, in terms of it being written, 
Uh, I mean, I just, I was like, okay, I'm doing it. I'm watching this video. I'm reading this. I'm reading all, you know, all of Von Mises. Cut to the chase. I called Jeffrey and I'm just like, okay, I'm typing. So essentially he dictated. It was really almost like he was channeling. He said, my name is da 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 da. So that script, uh, minus a few, you know, things that, that I tweaked or did differently, I mean, really was um, a credit to to, to Jeffrey. So, um, so if you enjoyed that video, um, thank Jeffrey and, you know, make it possible, support the Atlas Society, support AIER, uh, support Bastiat Society, that, that, that's what, you know, is making this possible right now. Um, so in addition to being editorial director for the um, American Institute for Economic Research, uh, he is the author of many thousands of articles um, and scholarly scholarly press and popular press, including stints that we've had working, you know, together when uh, I was at LifeZet. Um, he is the author of eight books in five languages. Um, most recently, The Market Loves You. Um, he's also editor of The Best of uh, Mises. He speaks widely on topics, economics, technology, social philosophy, manners, exercise, you name it. And is, he has a unique voice, especially right now, uh, his commentary, and we're going to get to that. Um, so, Jeffrey, welcome. Uh, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. So, um, so again, everyone, please ask your questions, especially you, Jim Caruso. I'm looking at you. I know you're here. <laughs> you, Jay LaPere, I know you're here. Thank you for paying for this microphone. Use it. Um, Jeffrey, let's start with just, because uh, I know where you are, and I love thinking of you there. Tell us a little bit about where you are. Tell us a little bit what you're drinking right now. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Well, what you just yeah. did. Yeah. So, yes, I am drinking a glass of absinthe which was, I, I love this stuff because it's a, like a French late 19th century drink of poets and, and um, yeah, artists and that sort of thing. It was banned. It was banned all over the Western world for a hundred years because they thought that it had a secret ingredient, wormwood, that made you intoxicated and that sort of thing. This is allegedly the basis upon which Van Gogh cut off his ear. So, you know, governments are always... Right? It's not just now. Governments have this weird precautionary principle that they ban things that they don't understand. And so they tried to ban a virus recently. I don't know if you know that. Um, but the, uh, which hasn't worked out too well. But the, uh, but, but, but uh, absinthe is a wonderful drink. It's the first time you have it. It's a little bit surprising. But, but it gets better, and then, and then you just develop a kind of desire for it. You know, I, not every day, not every day, but maybe every three days. So <laughs> I'm having that. I'm, I'm, I'm here in a, a place where I think you grew up in the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts, yes. which has been fairly peaceful uh, throughout the, uh, the quarantine. Everybody from New York wants to move here, so everybody's buying up all the, the, the houses and the land around there. Um, I hadn't left this property for five months until until this last weekend when I went to uh, the mountains of New Hampshire for Porkfest, and that was a really interesting event. Actually, we had something like maybe four or five hundred people there, and everybody was behaving normally, you know, like naturally and normally, and 
not not doing this kabuki dance and hopping around like grasshoppers and and muzzling our faces and things we it was a really wonderful event i wish you'd come um so that was a very interesting but, but jennifer i have to tell you it was also the first time i'd really been out well it's, actually it's not true five months because i was in new york on march 12th and i can we can talk about that but um, I was shocked at just how windswept our small towns in New England are right now. Uh, half the business is closed. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, America's turned into a very sad uh, uh, and almost depressing place. You know, we went, we went from peace and prosperity and, and happiness all around in February to literally just destroying everything, but man-made destruction. You know, it's just, so that was a shock to me, I must say, it was a shock. Well, and so, yeah, I know Great Barrington very well. Um, I grew up, up on weekends on Hilbert Road, which is right down the, um, mm -hmm. the road from the beautiful uh, estate where Jeffrey is speaking to us from. And by the way, I just have to say, because we've done a few of these, this is the best, you are the best looking guy, but this is the best, you guys have it together over there at IER. I mean, it's well lit, you look great. Um, and so Jeffrey has consistently, it's not the first time he's, he's gone and he's not single-handedly, but he's really um, revolutionized uh, different, different institutions. So, but Jeffrey, speaking of Great Barrington, because I, I remember like people say, well, you move from Great Barrington to Malibu, it's so different. And in a way, they're, they're kind of similar. They're both sort of mountainous, um, very rural, but politically very similar. How much of that do you feel like this uh, this desolation is is a reflection of the values that you're you're living. You're actually imbibing, the, you know, not you, but people in in, in communities where they are not, um, you know, getting infected or exposed to others' ideas. Other ideas. They're just hearing, you know, we're gonna die. We're all gonna yeah, die. There's right. nothing we can do. Well, one of the things I noticed, Jennifer, because as you know, I used to live in Atlanta, which is a, a, has a, a kind of a culture of, of freedom, really. And I, I had sort of gotten used to that. And that's what I was used to. When I came here, the first thing that struck me is that there's, I think it's true in New England in general, there's a culture of compliance. Certainly in Western Massachusetts, that's true. Maybe that's not true in New Hampshire. But uh, do you know what I mean by a culture of compliance? It's like, these are people who think that the rules uh, are the reason for our happiness and our prosperity and our order. Not, not freedom, but rules. And so you keep piling on rules and rules and rules and people keep obeying and obeying and obeying. And that was true when I first moved here. I was just shocked at how severe people can be if you break the rule, you know, going, going into a parking lot and backing into a parking place the wrong way or whatever. People would judge you. That never happened to me in Atlanta. So this has been a real challenge for uh, when the lockdowns came. Um, suddenly everybody had to, you know, that culture of compliance also kind of kicked in. But only to a point, you know, um, because everything's been canceled around here. You know, our famous music festival over here, uh, the, um, what's it? Tanglewood, yeah. Tanglewood. Yeah. Yes, of course. Canceled entirely for the year. This is the pride and joy of our culture. It's completely yeah. canceled, uh, which we can get to this. You know, like the arts have been devastated. I think I think we're going to be experiencing devastation for decades as a result of what's happened. So I think people have been really challenged. And 
um, I'm seeing more and more people just openly walk through the grocery stores without masks. Maybe, maybe to you that's no big deal, but around here that's kind of a big deal. Just to go, oh, to heck with it. I'm sick. I'm sick of doing the silly, the silly uh, dance uh, for the government because actually, the, the Massachusetts governor has. I think we're the slowest state to open, uh, as slow as California, if not slower. So it's been really very sad for us. Uh, the, the whole land has just been demolished and. And the culture of Great Barrington's is not the same as it used to be, I must say. I mean, it, it can come back, not as it was. But, you know, it's very interesting. When the lockdowns first came, you know, which began something like March 13th or 14th, maybe 15th, um, people around here were very earnest, right? So the theaters put up signs, stay home, stay, keep safe, save lives, stay home, um, don't move. But that was supposed to be for like two weeks. Well, here we are, you know, 110 days later or whatever it is. And, and, and our governors and our public health officials are still saying, stay locked down, stay safe, don't get infected. And people are really, I would say, around here really beginning to, to wonder. Um, when I go into convenience stores now, I just speak out against lockdowns very openly to anybody who's listening. And everybody agrees with me, actually. I can't seem to find anybody who disagrees. So I think New England culture here is maybe starting to rethink, to some extent, their devo the devotion to compliances versus freedom. So I, I think, it, you know, I think we're going to change as a people. And I think our culture here in New England is going to change too. We're to start questioning the authority a little bit more, maybe. That's beautiful. And I love, Jeffrey, how you are, because it, it, like you said, shock you know you we and i've seen you on some of the happy hours i mean we go through the stages it's like first shock right. and then uh you know grief anger uh you know you kind of go through them but then hopefully you kind of arrive at a place where you're talking about just looking for the positive change you know kind of what you focus on is, is where you're going to go and um finding ways to stay positive but also um Remember, folks, okay, share this video, ask questions, ask the question of Jeffrey. Um, one of the things that just inspired me, I said, oh, Jeffrey, you have to come on is a, the content that you've been putting out. I mean, like everything, folks, that he's talking about, he, he, check out, he had a beautiful article on um, his experience at Porkfest. Um, mm. Sign up for, uh, for the, uh, the newsletter. At, um, at AIER to, to make sure that you're getting it. Follow him on social media. Um, and, um, but one of the, the pieces that particularly resonated with me and we republished, again, Jeffrey's been a pioneer always of the, um, the uh, letting, letting people um, share, you know, so we get these ideas out there, uh, was an article that you wrote on the rise of brutalism. And mm. so talking about, um, these connections um, between culture, um, art, architecture. Everybody, please go and read it. But Jeffrey, would you just tell us a little bit about what, what inspired Yeah, and I reread that today. You know, it's funny because I wrote that really at the height of, of the riots and the, and, and, and the things that follow with the tearing down of the statues and the, the general atmosphere of violence and nihilism. And, uh, who gives it? Nobody cares anymore about anything. Let's just all be very bad to each other. And I began to, it suddenly dawned on me that there is a pattern in history where, 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 where there's big episodic change, you know, massive upheaval, wars, bombings, you know, the Holocaust, the Bolshevik Revolution, and so on. 
where where governments and powerful people and behave very badly bombing cities rounding up populations separating demographics um and we've seen this again and again and, and it always has an impact on the people because because if we tend to trust our governments and we tend to trust our leaders. That's why we call them leaders or representatives. So we, our executives, you know, we, we elect them or they're appointed or we believe they're appointed by God or whatever the thing is. And when they behave in ways that are, are grotesquely immoral, at least to violate our innate sense of what's right and wrong, we to ourselves began to doubt uh, whether or not anything is really true, right, permanent, worth preserving. If our governments don't care about the past, our human rights, our civil rights, the law, our architecture, our music, they shut down our theaters, shut down the ballet, shut down Tanglewood, shut down the symphonies, shut down the sports. If governments have the, the care so little about uh, morality, then why should we care either? And so the, it becomes like an infection this this happened after uh, World War II when we saw Dresden bombed and 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 the, the Holocaust and and London bombed and just and people drafted and and so, so many millions upon millions and tens of millions of people just slaughtered for for why just to serve the cause of power everything began to change after, after World War II. And one of the big things that changed was, was architecture with the introduction of so, the so-called brutalist style, a rejection of creativity and imagination in, in favor of power um, and, and a, sort of a raw, purely functionalist uh, view towards architecture. And so all, of, all over uh, Europe and the United States, you still see brutalist uh, architecture in Washington, D.C. especially, but many public buildings in the U.S. still adopt the brutalist architecture, are, are unadorned. And they're, they're detached from history. And they're completely lacking in what you would call like a creative aspirational um, uh, 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 outlook. They're, 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 they're grounded. And you, you might say they're bombable. They're designed to be, if, if governments are going to bomb again, if they're going to destroy again, then they won't destroy anything of beauty. So there was a sense in which World War II had a strange effect on, on, on music and architecture and art in general. It's like we, the governments of the world clearly don't care about, about beauty, about aspiration, about high ideals. Why should we care either? And the analogy here is basically what happened to us uh, starting March 13th, or I would say maybe the evening of March 12th, where we started seeing these arbitrary edicts. You can't, uh, uh, you can't fl fly to Europe, and, and, uh, or Europe, Europeans can't fly here. Your schools are closed. Your theater is closed. Your church, forget it. Your conference, out of the question. Um, and, and these edicts started coming down, the lockdown culture, the, 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 the whole attack on everything that we've ever taken for granted. And, and what I think it, what happened over the course of, let's see, um, April and May, where people were, were not just, not just got cabin fever, they stopped believing in anything.
right? We used to think we had a constitution that would prevent this, right? That democracy more or less worked, that the people would never tolerate this sort of thing. The Chamber of Commerce would surely weigh in on behalf of restaurants and prevail. And then I think I, we were all shocked. So after about six weeks, there was a sense of, wait, this is real. And I remember, the, I remember Jennifer those days. And I bet you do too, very well. The sense of like, this nightmare cannot last. It cannot last. You wake up every morning and think, today will surely be better. And then you would remember that yesterday actually happened. And well, it wasn't a dream. It wasn't a nightmare. It really was the thing. Something huge was happening to our world. And we had a hard time processing it. And we did this day after day after day. And so did millions of people in this country. So the very first opportunity to get out and do something, which was the uh, outrage at the uh, George Floyd killing, um, that was it. it. Just people just run out in the streets, and 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 it wasn't. There were many many good aspects of those protests, and I totally approve of them. But that also unleashed a kind of nihilism in the population. Who cares about history? Who cares about your store? I'm going to burn it down. Who cares about anything? I don't care about your rules. I don't care about our history. I don't care. So let's just, let's just tear it all down. Um, that's the way we matter. That's another factor too. People were treated like animals, right? So, so, but people are not animals. We're rational. We have volition. We have ideals. We have creativity. We want to get out and do things. We want to matter to ourselves and to others. And if government says, no, you don't matter. You have to just stick around in your house and watch Netflix all the time. And if you... And if you don't do that, you're, you're, you're endangering uh, the common good. Uh, at some point, maybe we'll do that for a couple of weeks, maybe even a month. Uh, I think Americans just finally got fed up in good ways and also slightly bad ways. So that's why I called it a kind of a new brutalism movement, that, that we, we stopped believing in normalcy and, and a peaceful, happy life and started just lashing out at anything we could possibly uh, do, whether it was, it was cops or statues or, 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 or the Walmart, uh, just whatever. We wanted to do something to make a difference and not always in good ways. So I would say in that sense, the lockdowns really have unleashed a kind of rampant immorality. And by the way, Jennifer, and I don't want to speak for you and I don't want to try to read your mind, but I, I think our listeners will understand I think, you know, there, we all have this fantasy that difficult times bring out the best in people. It turns out to not be really true. <laughs> you know? I would say people have behaved very badly uh, uh, during these lockdowns towards their loved ones, towards their family members, towards friends and coworkers. People have been on edge, like almost at the breaking point, at the breaking point. Many people have broken. It's been a psychological uh, trauma and torment for, for many people. When I spoke to the Porkfest audience the other day, it was very interesting because I'm pretty good at reading an audience. And I said something along the same lines, and I saw everybody's eyes get really wide. And I said, I, I think that there are many people in this room with us this afternoon, this evening, who over the last months have been psychologically introduced to a very dark place that they never thought they would be. 
and I and I saw a lot of recognition in the room, and by a very dark place. I think you know that is a kind of a, a, um, a euphemism that we use, right, for things we don't like to talk about. So I let a lot of silence go by, and I finally just said, "Congratulations to all of you in this room. You you are alive." Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely feel like that's a very important thing to understand that um, this is a massive stressor. And um, so, you know, we, we are seeing people stressed out and um, acting in ways that they wouldn't necessarily um, have acted minus the stressor. But I would also maybe turn it upside down and because it wouldn't be, you know, fun if we always uh, had the same perspective, we wouldn't get any place. Um, say that yeah, um, at the same time, um, I, have, I have seen a, people not showing their best, but I've also seen a lot of people, including you, by the way, Jeffrey, uh, that, you know, okay, this has been, it's this terrible crisis, Zoom, they go into the, uh, the phone booth Zoom, they go into their superhero self, you know, no pun intended, Zoom, and they uh, they come forward with like, whoa, you know, and I've seen that on the Out Society team. I, I mean, I'm not surprised because the people that I was like, wow, you know, I, I knew you guys were stars, but now they become sort of rock stars. Um, I've seen mm -hmm. that within my own family. I've seen that, you know, in our, in our, uh, donor, you know, base, that was one of the things early on, you know, I said, um, oh, of course we're not taking bailouts. I mean, you know, I, bailouts are for the people that have been literally prevented from doing their business, right? You know, they're not for people that are in the idea business, they're in the education business. And as a result, our revenues, you know, are, are up. I mean, a lot of people that have, hmm. have you know, they, they're, their business have shut down. Somehow they have figured out a way to come forward and say, please fight, you know, for, for this, please keep it going. So, so this, my strong sense, Jennifer, is that in our world, which is a yeah. nonprofit uh, world that, 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 that backs and promotes freedom, not everyone has behaved in a stellar way in our community, but those organizations, the Atlas uh, Society and AIR, and uh, we'll just leave it there, but uh, there are others, uh, are being rewarded for having stuck up for principle uh, uh, and been exercised moral courage in these times. Because, because you know, we've been, all been tested. Not everybody has passed the test. But, but the Atlas Society has, and I think we've published probably 300 articles from this thing, and I'm really proud to say that we've been driving forward the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. You know, we've been two or three days ahead of them at every uh, step, of, a step of the way and really stuck our necks out. That's called exercising moral courage. It's not always easy, right? I mean, God knows Ayn Rand knew this, knew this right? Her entire life was one crisis after another, uh, you know, during, during which she always had to reach deep within herself and say, what do I believe? What do I want? What can I do? What are the risks? I don't care. I have to live a principled and, and beautiful and productive life uh, as, a, you know, as a servant of myself and, and, and life itself. 
And she always did this time after time after time. And, and, and that's how she changed the world. But it's not easy. It's easy to talk about. It's much more difficult to actually do. <laughs> and so, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that, that reminds me was that Ayn had a great quote about courage, you know, and she said, I, you know, could be a coward, but I just see the consequences all too clearly. And I, you know, I'm like, okay, think it forward, you know, do this, and this, 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 and this happens. I mean, just think it forward. And I think that, yeah, unfortunately, even um, in our, our community, it's been hard. I mean, Jeffrey, you've been you have been um, way out there in, in ways that I think help to provide leadership, you know, for other people to say, you know, whatever, I'm going, I'm going with the truth. I am, um, you know, damn the, the immediate consequences. But um, one of which is, and again, everybody, reminder, please uh, ask your questions. But, um, you know, you mentioned being uh, ahead of the, the Wall Street Journal um, yeah. uh, page. Uh, one of the, the first like huge shots across the bow that, that you guys did, Jeffrey, was uh, was your article. If you go to his um, social media page and you look at, I, if, I don't know if you still have the comic up, um, was the, the article that you did comparing uh, the reaction to, uh, during Woodstock and right. um, and now, and, and then also some of the research that was um, was uh, quoted on um on Rush Limbaugh that helped turn the tide. Could you yeah. just tell us a little bit and then I promise Yeah, sure, sure. I, I'm really happy to tell this story. So um, one of the puzzles here is, is this idea of lockdown, right? Like who came up with this? And we can talk about that. But before I kind of began to write about the lockdown idea, which is really a 21st century idea, really born of the George uh, Bush uh, administration in 2006, there, medical professionals never spoke about lockdowns. They, they were really essentially against them. And it was, it was out of the 1918 H1N1 uh, pandemic, which was seriously deadly. There were a few cities that did close things, uh, San Francisco and Detroit and Chicago, not New York. And medical professionals realized that that didn't do any good. It, didn't, it, it actually creates a kind of social chaos that makes it more difficult to deal with the sick and, and uh, mitigate the disease and, and manage the pandemic. So um, people really against lockdowns, by the, especially by um, the 1930s when we began to really, really understand viruses. Um, and the understanding that that generation had, especially coming out of it was solving the smallpox problem was, was really the, the thing that gave rise to it. So, so what you have to do when a virus comes, you have to figure out who the vulnerable population is and isolate them not by force, but in their own interest. And, and, and then the non-vulnerable population uh, needs to gain immunity. There's two ways you gain immunity, either through a vaccine or through uh, acquired natural immunities, which is to say, to get it and develop the antibodies, right? And so this is, but the medical professionals in 1930 said, you know, that's gonna be a difficult sell for the American people. It, to tell people that they should get sick so that they can get stronger, uh, some oftentimes asymptomatic. And, and by the way, this doesn't apply to like HIV or Ebola, you know, not every virus, but for, especially for something like a coronavirus or a flu, uh, we know, uh, and you know, the common cold is this, a, a variant of coronavirus. We know that the best way to gain immunities to this is, is to get it, 
And then you create herd immunity, a, a theory that was really developed out in the 1960s, 1970s. And my, my point, Jennifer, is this. That was a very sophisticated generation. They really figured it out. And um, this is also the time of the mass distribution of antibiotics for bacterial infections. So there's a strict distinction made between bacterial infections and virus and viral infections. How do you deal with bacterial infections? If they're really serious, you take antibiotics. There's a virus. You need to get, it. You need to get immunities. Get it either through uh, vaccines, if one's available, which quite often is not, most often is not. Um, otherwise, you need to get it. So that whole generation was trained. So after World War II, um, so I went through a series of these pandemics. So there was the, the, the 1948 to 1951 polio pandemic. Uh, no lockdowns, you know? It was just disease mitigation and eventually a virus. Um, Donald Henderson was working all these years for, for, uh, to eradicate uh, smallpox, which he eventually did. He was a great man, died in 2016. And then you had the 1957-58 uh, uh, Asian flu. No lockdowns. 116,000 Americans died. This is with a population of, of, of 200 million and where people were only living to about the age of 67, or something like that. 116,000 uh, 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 Americans died from, from that Asian flu. No lockdowns, no shutdowns. We still went to concerts with Elvis. We still admired uh, Eisenhower as president and so on. The next one was, of course, the 1968-1969 uh, Hong Kong flu. So I wrote my whole article about the 100,000 Americans died. Again, uh, we only lived to 68 in those days, and uh, there were far fewer of us. So uh, it was a very, very serious disease. And I got curious, what all went on that in, in, during that pandemic? So there was the you know, there were civil rights protests, there were music festivals all over the, all over the place, there were, there were protests against uh, the draft. Life went on. The New York Times of the day, and the, it had one editorial on the topic that said, yeah, there's, there's a flu and it's very dangerous, but trust your medical professionals, let's not politicize this and don't panic. Whatever you do, don't panic. So Woodstock went on. And I wrote about Woodstock. And there were warnings at the time, don't go to Woodstock, there's a very bad flu out there. People were like, whatever. So they went out, probably half of them got sick, although mostly asymptomatically spread herd immunity. Everything's fine, life went on. We, we got you know, decades of great music out of that and it changed the culture forever. So by the time I published the article, I, I, I thought, what's the most interesting thing in my article about Hong Kong flu? And I thought, well, you know, it's Woodstock. So I titled it, Woodstock took place in the middle of a pandemic. And so, yeah, it went viral. Uh, a slight funny aspect of this is that it was about that time that Facebook was trying to crack down on what they called fake news, right? So they don't want anything that, that, that diverges from, um, they don't want anything crazy on their, on their website and, to, and viral, crazy viral things going. So they appointed like Reuters, um, Snopes, uh, USA Today, um, a few other organizations to, uh, to vet uh, postings uh, on on Facebook, so my article started really getting a lot of viewers. You know, maybe we're at, at the hundred thousand range, and and so Facebook appointed Reuters to look at my article. So they read it and they said, "It's true." Great. So Facebook blasted it out to the entire world. So it was suddenly a million, five million, ten million, 
And at that point, um, the lockdown proponents got really upset with me and I started getting trolled. So they started blasting Reuters. Hey, uh, you need to find something wrong with this article. Reuters did another vetting of the same article. This time they came back with uh, um, mostly true. Well, that wasn't enough. So the, the trolling started, you know, really cancel culture got, got to work on that article. And, and the, the next time Reuters investigated it, they said, well, it's partially misleading because the waves of infection occurred before and after, which is actually of no relevance whatsoever because you have to plan conferences. And you only know the waves like looking backwards in time. You don't know them when you're in the middle of them. So suddenly Facebook was like, well, I guess we should stop uh, promoting this article. So they kind of throttled it a little bit. But then USA Today got involved in this. But they read it and they said, well, you know, our fact checkers find that this article is true. So once again, Facebook is suddenly pushing it to it was the funniest thing to watch this. You know, you can imagine. I'm like watching the traffic patterns here and, and seeing this crazy fact-checking nonsense going. And so after USA Today called me true, then Snopes got involved. And they twisted it and mangled it. And ultimately, they came up with a judgment that it's partially misleading. And that gave the algorithms an excuse to kind of pull it back and throttle it once again. The article eventually went away. But I think in the end, I got um, maybe 30, 40 million views out of that thing. And it was a very good uh, lesson for people that we should be normal in the presence of, 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 of a disease, uh, viruses, or even a pandemic. We should be smart, use our intelligence, and rely on our medical professionals, and, and go about our lives without disruption as much as possible, because that is the best way to deal with and manage disease. Well, that gets to another question, actually. We got a question here from Paul Gibbons. I mean, when um, you're talking about, uh, you put this out there and um, all of a sudden, you know, the, uh, the these channels are starting to, you know, screen it, um, shadow it, sort of filter it, check mm -hmm. it, you know. So uh, Paul Gibbons has a question. What do you think about of the recent purge from YouTube of voices like um, Stefan Molyneux who are, are challenging the collectivist narrative. I don't know, uh, Jeffrey, have you thought about that? Oh, it's um, disgusting. Jennifer, we face this ourselves. Like John Idenitis, who's, who's, who's a world-class statistician and epidemiologist and has something like 50,000 citations to his uh, work from 15 years ago on um, fake science. I mean, this guy is epic. He had an interview on this in which he predicted, he said, you know, I think the, the, the infection fatality rate of this thing could be actually lower than seasonal flu. And he did this based on looking at the Diamond Princess infections. And he's a very brilliant, brilliant guy. He's very cautious. But he said, we're making, this is an article that came out, I think, early March. We're making extreme decisions based on very little data. This is unscientific. So he gave an interview on YouTube even his article was taken down. Even it was taken down. And, and, and Newt Witkowski, who's like a world-class statistician epidemiologist, uh, worked at Rockefeller University, trained at the best universities and everything, said, uh, said that the government is going nuts, that the, we're unleashing madness. This is, this is all crazy. We have to get immune. We have to only get this through herd immunity. Nothing government's going to do is going to change 
anything about what happens to this virus, he said. Well, his stuff was taken down. And then a second interview was taken down. So what we did on our end, because we were running these articles about these great, great minds being interviewed that were disagreeing with Fauci and company, right? And uh, there's this very funny in the Witkowski interview. They said, well, how can we disagree um, with Fauci? And he said something like, I'm not on the government payroll. That allows me to do real science. <laughs> I, love I love that. Anyway, what we did was we started duplicating these videos on, um, on a blockchain a video service called Library. And so we synced up our entire YouTube account with Library. So, and that cannot be taken down. And, and so we, what we started doing is once we started running these interviews, we would embed the library blockchain version so, so it's on the article so it wouldn't be taken down. And then we started realizing, that, okay, if there's an interesting perspective on this disease out there, uh, it'll be censored, maybe not immediately, but as soon as it goes viral, it'll be censored, it'll be taken down. So we started using only our blockchain versions and, and, and that was great because at some point in the last several months, we had, uh, we had the only um, web-based uh, web visible versions of something like three different interviews. And the New York Post wrote, wrote a big article about YouTube censorship. And they linked to our version of one of the censored videos. So I think that's why we fight back. I think it's what this has taught us is that we are too reliant on these, on these big... Um, channels, these big pipes, the big tech. And we need to start getting really creative if we want our ideas out there. We, we, can't, we can't be censored, that's, that's insane. Yeah, well, I think that's, um, that's a really interesting point. And again, uh, how technology, you know, and thinking just like rather, you know, we can complain all, the, all we want. You know, you can complain, ask bullies to stop bullying you, you know, ask for pity, ask for, you know, whatever, but if they're, they're going to do what they're, they're, they want to do. They also, right. you know, many cases, it's their property. They, uh, they have a right to do. So, um, so it's like the uh, best way to predict the future is to, to create your own. So, um, all right, let's get to another um, question here. One of them I, I wanted to get to actually, uh, I don't know, um, Jeffrey, if you know uh, John Lang, but, um, but our, he is the actual, he's sponsored. So that video, the, the uh, my name is Ludwig von Mies, wouldn't mm -hmm. be possible without Jeffrey. Certainly wouldn't have been possible uh, without John Lang. Wouldn't be possible without a lot of you guys that are, that are wow. watching and that are supporting the Atlas Society. So John is, is um, uh, asked us to start thinking about doing um, a next Draw My Life. By the way, we have, um, my name is Racism and my name is Venezuela in the in the tubes uh you know in in the production pipeline um but john asks he's challenged us and i do <laughs> one of the things i always do but i'm just doing it on live uh on on the live internet um is there not a unity between a defense uh of self and a defense of property so that's one of the things we're thinking about is a my name is is property how do we think about self and property Oh, uh, unity between the defense of self and the defense of property. Yeah. Well, I th that's what we've discovered. I mean, one of the extraordinary things that's happened to us over the last uh, several months is that the government massively attacked our property rights. That's incredible. You know, I, I, there's a video, you can look it up, of, of a SWAT team invading a rural Texas bar where a few dudes are sitting around trying to drink a beer and the SWAT team showed up. <laughs> 
right? I mean, that's just unbelievable. The lockdowns are a massive attack on property rights, which means an attack on your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're the same things. I mean, like one without the other becomes completely uh, non-operational. So property, we don't talk about it enough, really. But th- yeah, that I, was, the, yeah, the lockdowns yeah. were an attack on our property. I mean, you know, you, you own a theater, you can't open it. You own a church, you can't invite people in. You, you, you run a private school, your students can't show up. Um, you have an apartment uh, building. The government makes you contract trace with people coming in and out of it. I mean, Jennifer, it's been a shock, right? I mean, so, so even here at AIR, we had to ask fundamental questions of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like, do we own this property or do we not? Because at, yes. some, point, at, at some point, things became, became very strange over the last several months. So Massachusetts passed a law that said, if you're coming from another state, you have to quarantine in Massachusetts for two weeks before you can go out and about. And this is because viruses are very um, respectful of borders, as we all know. <laughs> anyway, and we had to really, and so, and, so and, and we live, as you know, right on the border of Connecticut New and New York, right? Yeah. And so people are coming in and out here all the time. So it's like, wait a minute. Uh, so this is our, our property, but you're telling us that if somebody comes onto our property, we have to stick them in a refrigerator box and feed them porridge uh, through a, a hole uh, for two weeks? Really? Are we really going to do this? I mean, it's really, it's a fundamental question. It's like, are we the owners of this place or not? Uh, can we set our policies for ourselves or not? You know, and this is, by the way, why the left has been weirdly, sorry to be bitter about this, and I am bitter about it, but um, uh, this is why the left has been so uh, pro-lockdown, because they don't believe in property rights. They don't care. They don't believe in commercial society either. So they're like, oh, yeah, close the stores, close the restaurants, close everything. Who cares? You don't own that. Everybody owns it. And, 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 and in the interest of collectivism, we're going to mitigate a disease. So, so your rights don't matter. Your property doesn't matter. This is, the, this is their dream come true. Yeah, it's sort of um, a corollary to you didn't build that. It's like you don't own that. And yeah. um, for me, I, I think uh, the crises and big losses, losses can, um, for me at least, they've challenged me to think about my property as my life and my life as my property. And um, I was telling John that when I uh, lost my house, when my house was was burned down um, due to arson stuff uh, started at the top of our canyon and uh, and 55 uh, homes in our canyon were lost, um, I, it, it changed me in a way in that I uh, started to feel like I've come down a little bit since, but uh, you know, at the time I was like, I became very protective of my time. And I also became very, um, had a hard time with people that would say, oh, it was just your property. You know, it was just your house. It was just your, it was just a physical thing. And I was like, no, that's my life. I, I worked and I thought, and I, you know, I, I, this was all of my, this was embedded into my life. It's not like it's your life and your property, you know, and, and, and just then I became protective of my time. I'm like, my time is my property too. And I'm not going to let, you know, more be taken from me, but of course I have. 
So anyway, you were talking about about the left. Phil C has um, and because we've got about yeah maybe fourteen more minutes, thirteen more minutes. Um, Phil C has a, an interesting question, and I know it's something both you and I had thought about. Um, he says uh, libertarianism and objectivism have not been successful in spreading their ideas. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, freedom and rationality seem to be inclined. Is this due to the failure of uh, media and schools? Um, how can we convey our, our message more, uh, more appealingly and effectively? Um, yeah, anyway, it's, it's a, it's a long question, but I, I would, no, no, I would we, also, we've, yeah. we've all thought about this, and it's it is very upsetting. I, I actually, I think the answer is very simple. I think we have not been bold enough. I mean, I, I think we, we, we have. To, so people these days talk about the liberty movement, all right, and we've been talking about that for like twenty years or something like that. Well, I would say the liberty movement has mostly failed us. And the reason it's failed us is because it became professionalized, and all these people are risk averse, and they're unwilling to speak out. That's it. Uh, and if if we speak out, if we're, we're if we're bold, if we're in whatever venue we can, and be creative about it, and be sincere about it, and 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 stop 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 putting our our pragmatism ahead of our principles, we will make a much better difference. We will make a bigger difference. The whole world, three months ago, three and a half months ago, wanted to know what libertarians thought. They really did. I mean, there were attacks on us, like, oh, nobody's a libertarian in a pandemic. You remember that? Mm -hmm, yeah. So, look, we didn't realize just how few of us that there are that are willing to stand up for what's right and true. And, and it's not complicated. We believe in freedom, like human rights, you know, freedom to associate, to, to speak, to, to own, to do, to make your own judgments, to exercise your own level of risk tolerance to 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 live to create that's not complicated why didn't we say that we did you did not enough of us did i think that's the answer we just we need boldness and you know jennifer people always underestimate the power of moral courage of of that that one voice that gets out there and says what's true even in the midst of cancel culture mm -hmm. and this is one of the reasons we didn't see uh, a lot of people speaking out is because everybody's afraid, right? With of what a Twitter mob. Oh, I'm sorry that 300 people wrote you something nasty on Twitter. That that is not a good excuse for being immoral, and for being silent, and for being a coward. That is just not a good excuse. It's not enough. Yeah, I know no, I, the Twitter mob can be angry and vicious, and they and and the press can do terrible things to you. Uh, but that's not a good enough, that is not a good excuse for being silent and, and failing to exercise, uh, to live a principled life. You can't do it that way. That's not, the, that's not what we've been called to do. That was not what Ayn Rand did. That's not what Mises did. These people live hard lives, all right? We're not talking about Twitter mobs. We're talking about Bolsheviks, all right? And Nazis. They stood up to them a great personal risk to themselves. And we're afraid of what? An editorial in the New York Times? Uh, please. Yeah, or whatever. Like we're afraid of losing our jobs. I mean, to yeah. me, it, it, you know, 
you should be if you you you're not willing to to lose something then you know you 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 may not really even uh deserve to to to, to have it you know you have to understand um i think uh what we're, what we're fighting for and i i guess i would say phil to to the question of objectivism specifically so i can speak to that and i um i think that uh if you've been watching what we've been doing at the outside and my poor trustees were watching they're like oh my god please don't tell jag to take more risks and to be <laughs> older okay because we're just trying to like you know calm her down um i you know so but uh, but objectivists hello hello objectivists <laughs> you got to think for yourself all right we're not running a uh, a preservation site or maybe so you know maybe that is that the marketplace of ideas the wealth of nations you know adam smith talked about specialization so let's have the you know the people that are going to keep the the potholders you know from uh, from getting faded um but then let's also have uh those that are willing to say okay i've crash landed onto mars i've crash landed onto a foreign planet which is our times okay which is these accelerating times in terms of technology uh and i'm going to look around i'm not going to not look i'm going to look i'm going to think i'm going to see threats i'm going to see opportunities and i'm going to act okay and if people are gonna I, i'll remember okay i just want to say this so i was talking previously about ways that jeffrey has um and this this brings us back to the circle of what what Phil was acting asking about what I was referring to with regards to um, objectivism. So when I was given the great privilege of um, having a go at the Atlas Society, I was like, okay, I got uh, like two magic markers, and I've got I got a great trustees, but like I've got I don't have a lot. So I was like, well, what can I do with like this? And I I said, well um i did the my name is um ayn rand draw my life and then someone said well just take it further like take it the next step and uh you know put a wig on to do a full like living history type of, of performance and i was like oh i can't do it alone and i called jeffrey and i'm like jeffrey would you be willing to do this with me and he did and and, and we did it and uh and he did such a great job he put on white tails I don't want to tell people to go and watch that video because it was the first one and it was not not great. But it wasn't that horrible. And I do remember a sort of old terrified. style. You were uh, so I was, nervous. I, oh my I, God. I was. I'm not and I, you up. Anyway, you did a wonderful job. But that was a, definitely it was the first time I did it. And I and I I, I, I was scared. It wasn't great, but it was okay. And um, but I do remember afterwards, I hadn't been prepared. Thank goodness I've now been through that. So now I'm like asbestos girl but um but i hadn't been prepared like i hadn't known about all this objectivism you know blah 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 these schisms or whatever and and the outrage i mean you don't want to talk about cancel oh, culture like the outrage yeah. of uh what you've done and somebody was like this is the worst thing i have ever seen the most evil thing i've ever seen and i, I was just like yeah, we gotta we gotta get used to it. If you're gonna do something good, you're going to be attacked. If you're gonna achieve something, people will resent it. If you're going to uh, make a dent in history, there will people will come after you and hate on you and try to destroy you. This is the, actually the great lesson of many that Ayn Rand taught us, and it's so strange that we've yet to like we read about it, but we're never prepared for it, right? We mostly think, oh, if I've done something good and I'm earnest about it, people will like me. No. 
Most people no. hate you. It's, it's That's okay. Yeah. Uh, but can I just say something quickly about objectivism? Because I know we're running yeah, out of please. time. But, you know, look, Ayn Rand used to say this. And I, I first time I read her as I was a junior in high school, you know, she would say things like, the tyrant is the man who tells you to sacrifice your self-interest for the collective, for everybody else. And you're reading that and go, eh, I don't know if that'll ever happen, really. I mean, do tyrants really do that? I mean... Right now, for three, four months, that has been the main message of public policy and lockdown culture. Sacrifice your freedoms, your self-interest for the collective good, everybody. You know, the tyrant is the man who tells you to do that. And these are times in which, which, which Ayn Rand, I would say, probably as much or more than any other thinker in the 20th century. She speaks exactly to what we're doing right now. It's not good health. It's not good for you. It's not actually good for the collective. It's propaganda. They're lying to you. And that line is, is, a, 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 is, is tyranny. God, if Ayn Rand were around today, can you imagine what she would say? Well, I think she would say pretty much what the Alice Society is saying right now. That's what she would say. <laughs> well, um... Yeah, so I, I have one more question, which we, you and I have talked about, but um, I, one of our people that are here with us on the Zoom is uh, John Davis, who's also a supporter of the Atlas Society, and um, he wanted to know just a little bit, you talked about, um, about your, when you first read Ayn Rand, but maybe just speak a little bit more to the, the, uh, the influence that it's had on you, because uh, one of the things when I was talking up at the top about like how Jeffrey put this thing into my head that shaped everything in terms of my approach going forward was when I said, Jeffrey, how do I re understand Ayn Rand within the context of, you know, the en Enlightenment and all of that? And, and you, Jeffrey said, before Ayn Rand, the battle, and to correct me if I'm wrong, uh, for liberty was um, intellectual. After Ayn Rand, it was deeply spiritual. T tell us a little bit about that because you, you, um, it's really true. You know, I, I think our, our tr liberalism as a tradition has always been a little bit vapid and a little bit bloodless. You know, we've been all about our theories and that sort of thing. I can't, I can't even imagine what would have happened to, by liberalism, I mean classical liberalism, the idea of liberty. What would have happened to that in the 20th century without her bringing a story, bringing spiritual power, uh, bringing romance? and meaning, life meaning, to the topic of human liberty. I mean, just like, she inspired Ludwig von Mises, right? I mean, just among millions of others, to, to even in his case, he re-understood his own life in light of what she wrote. And it's because she was focused on, on big themes. She was focused on just like, your individual life, your, the, your, the spiritual power you have, and what you will confront in your life if you stand up for yourself, if you stand up for your rights, if you believe in your ability to have an effect on history, you will be attacked and you will come under a challenge and you can push through that, but you have to be prepared for it. Nobody else uh, but Ayn Rand prepared people for the struggle, for the battle, for... For, for the romance of freedom and, and, the, and the, the terror of, of tyranny. She got it. And before she really wrote about it, 
um, the, the only people with a story out there were really the socialists and the communists. She brought the romance and the beauty um, and the meaning, life meaning, spiritual meaning of freedom to the world through her, through her wonderful books. And, and for that, that was a glorious gift to, to, to the cause of freedom in the 20th century and will continue to give for, for hundreds and hundreds of years hence. Uh, there's certain people who enter into history to make a profound difference, to protect our rights, to make the world beautiful, to make it prosperous and peaceful, all the things we allegedly believe in. Certain people show up as poets, as prophets, and then they go away. Um, Ayn Rand was one of them. And in many ways, um, you are one of them for me. You are one of them for many. Um, and, uh, and Ayn Rand uh, and Ludwig von Mises, as I said in the closing frames of, of our video, they, are, they have left us, but they are still with us today. So uh, it is our responsibility. It is my responsibility, um, Jeffrey's responsibility, to, to help to repay some of the, the, the debt that I certainly feel for their work. Um, and uh, to carry out what they wanted to see, which was they wanted to see um, socialism um, destroyed and fought and pushed back and um, individualism and liberty and free markets um, upheld. So, uh, so thank you, Jeffrey. Um, thank you, everybody. I'm so sorry to those of you who we didn't get to your questions. Maybe at some point, Jeffrey will do another one of these, or maybe he will come back and interview um, Ayn Rand. Thank you, all of you who um, who've made this this possible. Who are uh, not just you know stopping by the candy store and enjoying the content. Who are uh, actively supporting, investing in our work. Um, please, there's many ways you can do that. You know, just five dollar donation, fine. But um, share Jeffrey's work. Um, share this video. Share our work. If um, fight for your freedom, and if you are not in a position where you can help those who are fighting for your freedom and fighting for our liberties uh, and our reality today. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jeffrey. I love you. Perfect, Jennifer. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.